change people's minds, to change their behavior, to change their deep-seated opinion. To do that, you have to make an emotional connection. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This coming Monday, on September 21st, the United Nations will mark its 75th anniversary with a one-day virtual General Assembly meeting, convening world leaders from around the globe to celebrate the institution, which was created at the end of World War II to prevent such conflicts from arising again, and to reaffirm their collective commitment to multilateralism. Above all else, however, the meeting will be an opportunity for the UN to reassert the vital importance of its World Health Organization in uniting the international community's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, a role that has become intensely politicized and imperiled due to President Trump's threat to defund it. So, what does all this have to do with art? Well, this week also marks the announcement of the Future is Unwritten Healing Arts Auction, a major charitable initiative that Artnet and Christie's will be partnering on with the WHO to support the organization's coronavirus response efforts, with a focus on urgently needed mental health initiatives and the applied use of arts in recovery after the pandemic. Artnet Auctions will be launching its sale in October 2020, leveraging its industry-leading online platform to surface voices from the global artistic community in pursuit of a common goal. This is not the first time the WHO has employed art to advance its health mission. In fact, the organization has an entire arts and health division dedicated to the scientifically proven healing powers of the arts. Today, to talk about the connection between art and health and how the WHO has incorporated it into its mission, I'm pleased to be joined on the podcast by the organization's arts and health lead, Christopher Bailey. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Chris. Well, my pleasure. So the World Health Organization is headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. Is that where you're zooming in from right now? Uh, right now, I have a view of the Mont Blanc and Lake Geneva from uh, my sheltering in place at home. A beautiful view. So you are the arts and health lead at the World Health Organization, which is simultaneously an incredibly prominent role but it's also one that people probably have never heard of. Can you briefly explain the nature of your role and its responsibilities? Well, sure. And in fact, I think there are many people at WHO that were somewhat surprised when it got announced. It's not necessarily a core function of the WHO to think about art. But on the other hand, if you look back at the history of WHO uh, right back to our founding in 1947 when the Constitution was framed. We've, we've always been involved in the arts to one degree or another, usually in the form of campaigns. So, for instance, when the DOTS program was rolled out in East Africa with tuberculosis, we used local radio soap operas, local artists to roll out that program successfully. And, and every major uh, campaign campaign. There's always an artistic element, but it, it's usually in the context of health messaging and, and not so much looking at the, the healing aspects of art itself. So hmm. it's, it's, it's slightly different, this angle. So I, I want to delve into the relationship between art and health that you mentioned, because obviously that's a very compelling topic these days. But first, why don't we delve into your life story and what brought you to where you are today? 
How did you first get drawn to art? Art? Oh, well, for me, it was right from the beginning. My father was a painter and he earned his daily money through art conservation, actually. So some of my very first memories were being brought to meet him at the end of a workday in museums. So from a very early age, art has been something that has been part of the warp and woof of my life, you know. And then you were a practitioner of the arts yourself for a while. Not the visual arts, but in theater. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and I uh, was a professional actor for many years before going into philanthropy and later global health. But art to me has never been an elitist thing. It's It's been a a practical thing. Even when my father would bring me to the museums, you know, the way he looked at a painting was as a technician. He would come up to the painting itself and describe the chemical composition of the paints and and how they were layered and and the, the construction of a work as an artifact, as well as the symbolism and all of that. So for me, art is as much about engineering almost as it is about aesthetics. So how did you find yourself go from the theater world into philanthropy and wind up at the World Health Organization? What was your trajectory? Oh, well, I'll I'll tell you the short version because I don't think we have a long enough podcast for the long one. (laughs) But I I was a fairly successful stage actor back in the day. And um, the main thing that drove me into philanthropy, frankly, was having babies and the feast and famine reality of being a working actor based in New York City. You know, I I was not a star. I was not part of that 1%. So I had to look for alternatives. And I one day saw an ad in the Sunday New York Times for a research professional for a global philanthropy, and it turned out to be the Rockefeller Foundation. (laughs) And they put me in charge of their research uh, program and essentially the the, the library. And I was um, suddenly in the world of philanthropy. And then when the health officer at the Rockefeller Foundation, a guy named Tim Evans, was recruited by the World Health Organization to start a knowledge management program at WHO, I was the only person he knew who used that phrase at that time. Hmm. And so he asked me to help create a strategy, which was originally supposed to be a two-year gig. And I think it's about 16 years later now. I'm still here. So (laughs) life is funny. How did you come to this belief that the arts can be a tool in advancing global health? Well, part of it was just the practical reality of it. For much of my time at the World Health Organization, I was involved in health informatics and more specifically working with a electronic medical record systems in rural HIV clinics in Africa. And I found that simply presenting the evidence of why these programs could save lives only got you so far. Uh, When we began to use role play techniques and storytelling techniques and even singing to talk about and share health technical ideas and and IT ideas in, in my case as well, that there was a deeper level of communication. People understood not just intellectually, but emotionally what was happening and felt a sense of ownership in the process 
So in some ways, my theater background bled into my health technical work, but it wasn't really until Dr. Tetris came on board as our director general, and he put out this famous call to staff for crazy ideas, innovative ideas. And at that time, I had been working with a theater company here in Geneva, evenings and weekends, for a number of years. And I thought, hmm, what would happen if I more formally brought these two streams of my life together? So I, I, I pitched this idea uh, to Dr. Tetros, and it was really quite simple. I said, we know that evidence, data, and information are absolutely essential for establishing objective scientific truth for problem solving, for saving lives. Mm -hmm. But frankly, we also know from the evidence that that alone is not sufficient to change people's minds, to change their behavior, to change their deep-seated opinion. To do that, you have to make an emotional connection. You need empathy, and often in the form of a narrative. And so he said, go. And that was uh, the beginning of the adventure. I do want to go back a step because I think in, in addition to your work in, in close contact with these crisis zones and working specifically with the Ebola epidemic, you also went through a period of intense personal trauma. Well, I, I, I went through a number uh, over the years. And the first one was cancer. I was diagnosed with stage three cancer a number of years ago. And I, at that time, uh, was given a 50% chance of surviving the year. And spoiler alert, I lived. But it also put me into, like, like many cancer patients, into a very heightened reflective state of mind. And what I found is that, for me at least, that being involved in the theater was essential to my path uh, to, to healing. And it, um, when everyone was telling me, uh, oh, go home, uh, take extensive leave, uh, just heal, don't worry about any of these activities, you know, what I did was I wrote a play and got it produced in New York and you know, worked with actors. And what I found is that at the height of my chemotherapy, when I literally had blisters on my feet, I had blisters in my mouth, I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk. When I was on that stage, I felt this sense of well-being that overwhelmed whatever physical discomfort I had. And of course, it didn't last long. When I got back home, I still couldn't walk or talk. But it, it was remarkable. And now whether that was an actual healing quality in a medical sense, I don't know. But what I do know is that engagement in an artistic activity put me into a more healing frame. And that's a form of healing. There is a lot of evidence that art has a lot of great uses as palliative care, especially in, in end-of-life clinics and giving Absolutely. people... Absolutely. Uh, across the board and physical rehabilitation, uh, I've seen it work extremely effectively with Alzheimer's patients, with Parkinson's patients, and not so much to cure the condition, 
but to to help people accept it and transcend it. If anyone was interested in the science of the health benefits of the arts, I would point them to the WHO report on the subject, which came out last November, which Hmm. shows the evidence base currently of the health benefits of the arts. So please do look that up. But an academic discussion The other trauma that you alluded to beyond the cancer, which happened more recently, is I became blind. Not exactly totally blind. I have terminal glaucoma and I have less than 5% of normal vision. And in today's society, 80% of our engagement with the world is visual. So when I lost that ability, it was like a death. It was a death of the way that I was used to enjoying beauty, used to enjoying functioning uh, in the world. And like any other death, it went through phases. I went through periods where I was crying multiple times a day. I was sad. There were other periods where I was in denial, other periods where I, I was filled with rage and fury. I went through a bargaining period where I thought, well, if I just eat right or do the right exercise, my optic nerve will regenerate. And then eventually, like with any journey similar to to death and mortality, I reached a kind of acceptance. But I think with my blindness, it was more than just simply acceptance. It was a transfiguration. It became a part of my identity rather than just something that I managed to get by I began to embrace it. I began with training and assistive technology and began to learn echolocation and began to recognize the oral landscape around me as something not as detailed as the visual world that I had gotten used to, but profoundly beautiful in its own strange way. Hmm. Wow. That's the healing power of art. hmm. From a technical standpoint on the role of the arts improving health and well-being is is there something that is grounded in hard science that maps out a real causal relationship that can be seen as a kind of an adjunct to the very you know powerful and and emotional way that you just described how it heals um you well and and that i think is The beauty of this program is that we embrace both hemispheres of the brain. So in that report, it was all about what can be measured. So to give an example in the report, you would have a controlled study of two hospital wards and measure cortisol levels in the blood. And they'd be absolutely identical, except in one ward, you might have paintings on the wall. And... In the ward with paintings on the wall, the measurable levels of stress of the patients and the hospital workers were significantly lower, you know, arguably helping create a more healing atmosphere. There was a, another study mentioned in there of physical rehabilitation, where the exact same physical movements to rehabilitate someone after uh, surgery were done in one case just as the movements and in another case as a dance with music. The speed at which that person healed and recovered was remarkably faster if it was done to music and dance. 
So these are measurable outcomes. Uh, and there are dozens and dozens of examples like that in the report. Now, what that report tells you is that use of the arts in these very specific ways have a measurable difference in a health outcome. Hmm. What it doesn't tell you is why and, and what the mechanisms are. And, and that is interesting. There are a number of studies out there that are emerging in that direction as well. Uh, studies that show that in a concert hall or artistic engagement, a theater event, there is a tendency for the audience's heartbeats to synchronize. You actually have in these moments of mirror neurons echoing deep emotional states between performer and audience, an elevated level of T-cell, you literally go into a more healing state. Now, from a WHO point of view, the evidence is not sufficient enough to make any grand statements about this, but it's, it's compelling enough to say, this is part of the research agenda. This is something we should be looking at. Uh, again, if you go back to the 1947 WHO constitution, hmm. health is defined not as merely the absence of disease, but the attainment of the highest level of physical, mental, and social well-being. And certainly by that definition, the arts have uh, a very big role to play. And I would argue it's one of the mechanisms, behaviors that have evolved in our species to do exactly that. So how is the WHO operationalizing these findings? Were there any actionable policy recommendations that came out of the report? Yes. And in fact, that was one of the significant parts of the report were showing why arts are not an optional nice to have, but in terms of health, it's an investment. And uh, policymakers should be investing in the arts infrastructure as, as part of a holistic approach to a healthy society. You know, it makes me think of this famous statement that Bill Gates made a while back, where he was asking, why would anybody want to donate money to build a new wing for a museum instead of spending it on preventing illness that can lead to blindness? And this was a very controversial stance at the time, and I think continues to be today, um, considering the huge amount of money that is flowing through the art world, couldn't you argue that funneling some of that money towards health causes might actually be the best way <laughs> that the art world could help? I, I, I think that, frankly, by investing in health, by investing in the arts, you're creating a virtuous cycle that a, a healthy society is a creative society and vice versa. Hmm. When you think about it, what is really the healing power of art? The real power is art's ability to comfort, its ability to confront difficult issues, its ability to create community, and its ability to contextualize very difficult events during anxious and uncertain times to, mm -hmm. to provide a kind of sense-making to navigate that emotional and sensory landscape when all else fails. In fact, uh, the next project that we're working on with Artnet and Christie's is this auction coming up. And, and I think that's one of the compelling focuses of this campaign is how can art 
help support the the mental health response to COVID because there's mm-hmm. been a tremendous amount of money raised for vaccines. The Lady Gaga concert that we put together, which mm-hmm. with very little monetary investment on the WHO side, raised over a hundred million dollars for all these other efforts. So again, it's it's an investment. It's not a cost, but. Uh, at the moment, the mental health toll of this pandemic is becoming more and more apparent. Mm-hmm. And it, it's something we've been giving short shrift to. And so a lot of these uh, celebrity ambassadors who have stepped forward wanting to help, it's something that's important to them as well. And, and, and everyone else, the grassroots artists that come forward, you know, that's the other thing is that artists, you know, beyond just the 1% that are household names, working artists around the world are in that demographic that are hardest hit by the economic consequences of this pandemic. They mm-hmm. don't have health insurance. They don't have unemployment insurance. They're, they're worried about making the next month's rent. And all too often in humanitarian causes, we ask artists of, of all sorts to work for free. You know, I don't mind asking millionaires to donate, but I do mind asking you know, the blue collar artists, shall we say, to donate their work for a humanitarian cause. They're the first to do it because they, they go into arts because they do have a profound empathy for other people's suffering. Mm-hmm. But I think there's another way, you know, uh, and, and so part of what we're doing with this auction is actually supporting artists as well to be part of, of this effort. And ideally, as part of the proceeds of this auction or other funding sources, to, to find a way to, to pay them for that. You know, it's, it's more that this, this has value, you know, and, and value, not just uh, spiritual or aesthetic value, but monetary value as well. In approaching these very noble and important goals, you've worked with the theater world, you've worked with the music world, but you've called the art world the next theater of operations. And you've said that it's always been a hard nut to crack. Can you talk about why that is and and the kinds of opportunities that you see in terms of collaborating with members and organizations in the art world? Well, I think from a personal point of view, it's not so much a judgment on the art world. It's just more, uh, I come from the theater world and the performance world, so I just don't know it as well. But I also think that the, the way the art world has evolved, it, it seems to me that it doesn't have the same kind of plasticity or openness that I've experienced in some of these other artistic genres. I I don't want it to sound judgmental, but the dynamics are different, I think. And so part of the engagement with the art world uh, for this auction and and for this wider storytelling, what I'm finding is that the the people are as open and as generous as as anyone else, but the, the way that world communicates is new to me. And so I've had to learn. Hmm. I think one of the things that surprised me when we started to put out the call for art as part of this this fundraising auction, we didn't put any boundaries or descriptions on it. There was no curatorial boundary. 
But as they started to come in, we began to notice patterns that a, a lot of these artworks dealt with the response to trauma. Hmm. And I found that really interesting. So I'd like to bring out some of those stories and uh, to engage with the artists and, and the audience on what that artist and the subjects were going through that created this fascinating work of art and, and what effect did that have? Especially right now, that seems to be the subject that everybody is, is, is approaching from one degree or I, another. I think there's, there's that subject, which is, I think has a special urgency today, but also um, this notion of imagining a path through this difficult time. And that brings us actually to that second element uh, of what makes us unique as a species, and that's our imagination. 70,000 years ago, the very first wall paintings that showed a human figure with an animal head were etched onto a sandstone surface, something that does not exist in nature. So something happened in that neurological revolution where suddenly we had the ability to take our sensory information and imagine something that doesn't exist. And that what if is the beginnings of both what became art, but also what became science. Because without that creative leap of the hypothesis, there's nothing to test. Hmm. And, and that, I think, is an, another connection between science and art. The primacy of that moment of creation, which literally means something out of nothing. Well, Chris, these are some really profound ideas. And I want to thank you for sharing your, your personal story with us. And I also am really excited to see this auction take shape. And I'm proud that Artnet is going to be able to be part of it. So thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle. Oh, my pleasure. And that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.